This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. They just were really willing for me to just push myself as far as I could go when it came to the physicality of the character, which, you know, was losing weight and, and changing my physical appearance as much as possible, to pushing myself mentally and finding places and emotions in me that I didn't really know that I had. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor, joined as always by my co-host, David Canfield, EW's movies editor. Hi, David. Hi, Clarissa. Today, Tom Holland joins us to discuss his dark new film, Cherry, which hits theaters this week and will be released on Apple TV Plus on March 12th. We spoke about his role being a long, long way from Peter Parker and the challenges of playing such an intense, damaged character. But before we get into that, we've got Oscars of the past on our minds. If you've been following along with us this season, you know Glenn Close's possible long-awaited win for Hillbilly Elegy has been a topic of much discussion, especially since most would agree it's not her best role. (laughs) (laughs) It got us thinking. What other greats have won for the wrong role? To get into this discussion, we're joined today by EW Digital Features Editor, Mary Solosi. Hi, Mary. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, Hi, Mary. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Mary's here to give us all her thoughts on all of the wrong Oscar winners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) just to get get this started, I, I feel like a lot of these eventual Oscars end up being kind of like lifetime achievement awards instead of <laughs> an award for the best performance of that year. Um, do you, can, can you give us a sense of, of how you feel about this, Mary? Like why, why are some, why are actors getting uh, awards for what we think are the wrong performances? Um, I don't, I mean, I do think, you know, if, if I, I mean, for example, like Leonardo DiCaprio, when he finally won, there'd been so much outrage that he'd never had one before and he got one for The Revenant, which I think is not for, most people's favorite for, for eating raw bison liver yeah. which is not for acting necessarily right. but sure but for getting um, pummeled but um no i do think they they award them as acknowledgement of old things i mean my number one like biggest outrage in this area i've told david this many times he's heard me rant about this before that's why you're here (laughs) is that colin firth won for the king's speech a total paint by numbers schmaltzy whatever historical (laughs) drama that is just barely saved by having three incredible actors at its center instead of winning just the year before for a single man, which is one of the most breathtaking movies I've ever seen. And 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 he is so wonderful in it. He gives this delicate, devastating performance. And then the next year he fakes a stutter and congratulations, you get an Oscar. It <laughs> outrages me. I can't think of anything that makes me angrier. And so anyway, um, that, and that was just the following year. So I feel like the only possible explanation for that is that the Academy was so ashamed of themselves for their mistake <laughs> the year prior, they just had to give him an Oscar as soon as possible. Um, so yeah, that's my take on um, that. Thanks so much for stopping by, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, the, the other side of this coin, too, is that in that year that Colin lost for a single man, Jeff Bridges won for Crazy Heart, which was its own kind of redemp- redemptive, long-awaited win. So I think Colin was, in a way, a victim of the kind of trend that he then benefited from immediately in the next year. So I don't even know what, what to make of that exactly, but... Um, it's it's an interesting period. That's crucial context. I you know it's hard for me to think about the context when I'm <laughs> I'm so enraged by the injustice. So thank you for pointing that out. I love an outraged Mary. I love. It. <laughs> but I do agree that Colin Firth in the Single Man is like the pinnacle of his at least film acting career. And so I was very confused when he won instead for King's Speech. My my other example, given that we were talking about Glenn Close is Glenn Close because I'm one of the few, this narrative happened a lot around the wife as well when she was contending for best actress for that. And many thought she would win after she won the golden globe. And of course, rather infamously lost to Nicole Kidd to Olivia Coleman while wearing a gorgeous, uh, long gold gorgeous. dress. <laughs> she was ready for it. She, she was, was she was for the moment. She was dressed to win. Yeah. And, I thought that The Wife was actually one of her best performances. And this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I, I, I think that the movie got a bad rap for being this kind of small, quiet slice of life, but it really was a different kind of role for her. She's so, we're so used to her being like Fatal Attraction or Corella DeVille, Glenn Close. But in The Wife, it's this really slow boil of a performance that kind of has this explosion. And it's very illustrative of this trend that, she would get dinged for winning for that movie to the extent that she didn't win, because I do think that there was enough like, ugh, for this movie that prevented her mm. from going all the way. Whereas for Hillbilly Elegy, it's almost the opposite, where the backlash to that movie was so intense that she didn't really figure into the conversation for a while. And then when the movie came out, it was pretty popular and such a huge performance that in a way I do think it's it's sadly dispiritingly fitting that she would win for a movie like this because it's kind of back to like transform glenn who i think is great in the movie by the way but it's just a bizarre 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 trend well the cat t-shirts do a lot of the acting in 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 her scenes um but but she was but she was she was really great clarissa do you have do you have a an injustice that you would like to write right here in this podcast. I have, so, I have so many. I have so many. Um, but the one that stands out to me was um, Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Oh yes. Which um, I mean, you know, he could have won for so many other things, but for saying what was it, Hua or whatever the his, yes, his that's it. <laughs> I just thought. I just thought that that was such, um, you know, an over the top kind of you know, blustery performance. And there were so many others that he um, deserved more, um, an Oscar for more. And I think this was definitely the Lifetime Achievement Award effect where um, they totally. they figured that they needed, they you know, that he hadn't had one and they had to give him one. And this, not that they had to, because obviously he's a hugely talented actor, but but for this, did we want him to get it this way? I don't know. I, I- that's kind of one of the most classic examples because it's Al Pacino and it's mm-hmm. most people's least favorite, I feel like, of that period, at least, Al Pacino performance. Um, right. He's done he's done some less than great movies since then as well. But <laughs> while we are on that topic, um, I thought of this last year um, for Joe Pesci, for The Irishman, 
which to me was his mm. all-time best performance. I mean, he didn't really campaign because he's Joe Pesci, but right. it's another <laughs> example of like the quieter version uh, of an actor not getting his due in a way that he might have for another kind of role. Well, I feel like they're like the most acting better than the best acting. Like who yeah. did the most? That's really what they're after. But I mean, actually, you guys keep bringing up, we, I mean, we've mentioned a few Scorsese actors and movies. And what about him winning for um, The Departed, mm. winning The Departed director for The yes. Departed? And it's like, right. really? For The Departed, not for Goodfellas? Like, mm-hmm. Or Casino, like, or Taxi Driver, or Rachel. I know, Cole. there's options. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, crazy. I mean, I the one of them um, that you had mentioned, David, um, Nicole Kidman. Um, oh for, my god! Well, that's my number no. one. Yes. Yeah, for the hours um, versus which I loved her in To Die For. I mean, I, I think that I, I, I think she was. Well, she didn't wear a fake nose that. in To Die For. You have to I have know. a fake nose to win an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, and that, that to me, it's it's also like a supporting performance. She's in a third of that movie. And she wins literally for the fake nose. That's probably my biggest example because Nicole Kidman has had such a pretty amazing varied career, particularly in like the last five years with the stuff that she's been doing on TV. For her one Oscar to be for the hours is just baffling to me. I mean, To Die For is an ultimate, I don't even think she was nominated for that, but it is to me the Nicole Kidman performance. And um, I, I do think that in general, what you see with this kind of thing too is like someone like Nicole Kidman now is, you know, once you win your first, you're less likely to win a second. It's just kind of how it goes. And I think yeah. that the hours has sort of been an impediment to Nicole Kidman getting that perhaps more deserved Oscar. Although lots of people are great in the hours. I'm not like, I don't dislike the hours at all. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up about, you know, if if you've already won, maybe you won't get another one. And I feel like there's definitely that sense that, let's say if you you are nominated multiple times, like if you've won in the last five years, um, it's like, oh, yeah, no, he or she just got one. So why why give them another one? And I feel like there are so few exceptions to that, like being Dom Hanks, who one back-to-back for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, um, oh, and some supporting yeah. actors, Mahershala Ali and Christoph Waltz, like they they won in close years. But I mean, why do you th- why do you think that is? I mean, it really should be the best performance in in the in the year, not you know not sort of this historical reward. I think. Well, I think this year it's an interesting conversation too because in, in Best Actress, I don't know that we would be talking about Carrie Mulligan as the front runner right now if her biggest competition wasn't Frances McDormand, who's won two, including a few years ago, and Viola Davis, who won her first pretty recently. I think that there's just a desire to anoint the new. It kind of always comes up. While we are on on the topic, I don't want to lose the Tom Hooper thread just yet, Mary, because (sighs) there's one more. Tom Hooper Oscar winning performance. Uh, Nobody that... should win an Oscar for acting in a Tom Hooper movie. I hope Tom that, Hooper I isn't mean... listening to this. We don't we don't hate Tom Hooper. <laughs> no, we don't, but I mean the track record, none of them should have them for those movies. Yeah. Um Anne Hathaway winning for Les Miserables. Uh, I, I'm also very comfortable saying Anne Hathaway should be an Oscar winner. Um, but for the film Rachel Getting Married, not for Les Miserables. Um, a film that I did not care for, to be to be frank. 
Um, no. Mary shaking her head. <laughs> no, I could First of all, I can't stand that way, miserable. Second of all, I mean, I sort of, it's, I'm sorry, I, here I go again. I'm on another rant. I, here we go. I feel it happening. But um, she, I, like, it just made me so angry that she won. She basically won for singing I Dreamed a Dream. She sang that one song into her, she had snot dripping out her nose and it was very effective and she, everyone gave her the Oscar. And I just, it was it's sort of incomprehensible to me. I remember her saying in interviews at the time, like, I just, I thought it would be a disservice to the moment to sing the song prettily, but it's, it's a musical. Like I, <laughs> I, to me, what I can't get over is that it's not, it's not like a backstage musical. It takes place in 1832 and they're all fighting each other. So it's, the music is like a heightened interpretation of intense feelings. So it's not supposed to blend with reality. The song is pretty because she has such grace in this low moment of her life. And so when she doesn't sing it prettily, it's just an ugly moment. Anyway, <laughs> I hate that decision. I, I hate that movie. I mean, I don't hate, okay. And now see, I'm getting all worked up. So I'm, I'm being too mean. Anyway, that was wrong. She should have it for Rachel getting married. She should not have it for that movie. And and that's my take on that. <laughs> I agree. I also think that <laughs> anyone who watches Rachel getting married and either Anne Hathaway scenes with Rosemary DeWitt or Deborah Winger would say, wow, I'm surprised she didn't win for this when she has an Oscar for Les Miserables. And that's the end of that rant. Um, I would love to pivot this conversation slightly to this year and looking at the front runners and where you guys think that they're kind of situated within their filmography. So if we look, we've obviously talked about Best Supporting Actress and Glenn Close. Um, right. right. Over in Best Supporting Actor, like, if you say, as we have said, it's between Daniel Kaluuya, who I think it's safe to say that's a, a career best performance so far and Judas and the Black Messiah, though he's obviously phenomenal in Get Out and also um, Widows, he's really great in. Um, the other big contender there is Sasha Baron Cohen. And for Trial of Chicago 7, when I first watched that movie, he was not the actor that popped to me. And I, from what I understand, I'm very much in the minority there. But um, obviously, I've loved various things he's done. Um, but it is an example of an actor not known for doing drama, doing drama and getting potentially very amply rewarded. Clarissa, where, where do you see it in the, in the Sasha rankings? In the Sasha-verse? Um, I think, I mean, as, as much as we should be, you know, we should be analyzing these performances individually. I think this year it's, um, it's, a it's also because, you know, a lot of people, uh, enjoyed Borat and, um, yep. and it came during a time when, when people needed that sort of relief and everyone, everyone's home and, and captive audience. And, and I think, um, I, I think, uh, he's top of mind. I think he's definitely in the conversation. I think that'll help um, as far as the support for him in this category. Um, I do, I do think Daniel Kaluuya, I mean, is fantastic and, and, um, and is probably the front, the front runner there. But, um, but I, but I, I do think in this, in this, um, in this instance, in this year for Sasha, I mean, he'll definitely be uh, top of mind, just at least for nominations for sure. Yeah. The other thing is that there's this is a year for a lot of breakout performances. So you, you're talking about um, people like Carrie Mulligan and um, Chadwick Boseman, of course, uh, who really gave his best performance in his final performance, uh, sadly, but also I think that, that will have a, a happy Oscar ending. Um, is there anyone else, Clarissa, that you see as potentially 
win like winning for something that maybe the timing feels weird just given the quality of whatever it is i'm not sure but but you had mentioned david fincher for mank um yeah we've talked about we've talked about yeah yeah and i don't know i mean what has he ever won anything i don't know the history on on uh, as much in the directing category um so david fincher's never won um and that's yeah he's he's probably in that race with with chloe zhao um, mm-hmm. I don't think Mank's really in the best picture hunt for the win as much, but the, he was considered the overwhelming front runner, just given the sort of the the Hollywood in love with Hollywood. The, yes, the, <laughs> yes. Of, the, 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 the premise, thing. the premise of the movie, and also just the the aesthetic and all of that. Um, and the movie had, I think, a very not divisive launch, but it, it wasn't as perhaps widely loved as some thought. Though certainly is loved in, in many circles. We've had. Uh, Joey Nolfion, who is emphatically not <laughs> a fan of Mank, so <laughs> not universal acclaim with NEW. But but I, I agree. I mean, David Fincher is a kind of iconic director who has made what many consider to be the best film of last decade in The Social Network um, and many others that are beloved as well. So it does feel like one where it's like, of course, they would give it to him for this one. Of course, it's like the Hollywood story that David Fincher tells. It's also got a, you know, an emotional component, him adapting his late father's screenplay. Um, so that would be one that I would, I would add to my, to my list. I'm not going to put him in the Tom Hooper category, Mary, but <laughs> he, he is like, he is there. He is there. I mean, one, one um, person that I'm hoping gets nominated and, and, you know, it's a crowded category, so I'm not sure about a win, but Bill Murray um for mm. on the rocks i feel like I, yeah. I mean i just thought he was so heartbreaking and amazing in that um and i would love to see him in this space but just because that category is crowded i don't i don't think um a win is on the cards but i would love to see him get nominated bill is a great example i think of someone who probably sh- I, I thought he would go further because it is such a in many ways it feels very representative of his career it's it, he embodies a lot of his persona uh, through the years. And it, there's a, there's a new depth to it as well. I loved him in that movie. I, I'm surprised he hasn't gone further, even him being the aloof campaigner that he is. It, yeah, he's probably not trying very hard. <laughs> no, he's not. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a really good one. Uh, Mary, what about you? Any, any people you have your eye on? Um, well, I know this is unlikely, but I, I would love to see Michelle Pfeiffer in the race just because she doesn't have yeah. one. And I love her. And I loved French Exit. I know people were mixed on it. But um, I, th- I think it's in a way it's similar to the Bill Murray thing where she's totally. so glamorous. And she's really invoking her own star persona as part of it. Um, and so, I mean, even though I also, I really don't expect it. So that's just me expressing that I love her because um, <laughs> I know it's crowded this year. And that's not really probably in the cards. Well, both of them are are very much in the hunt. They are Golden Globe nominees. And um, Mary interviewed Michelle Pfeiffer. They had a lovely, fabulous conversation. <laughs> we did. They did. We have to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have Clarissa's interview with Tom Holland. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Benning and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case, and the stop-motion animated In the Know, from Mike Judge, Brandon Gardner, and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Trade. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. Welcome back. Now I have my interview with Cherry's Tom Holland. Enjoy. Hi, Tom. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. So I saw Cherry and I was just blown away. Amazing, amazing job. Um, Can you tell people who have not seen the film what it's about? Yeah, of course. Um, Cherry is the story of a young boy who falls in love and gets tangled up in making the wrong decisions. He joins the military. He serves a tour in Iraq. And on his return, it's about this young man suffering from PTSD and falling into um, substance abuse. And the film is about how he's constantly chasing um, the love of his life uh, while also trying to balance this life of dealing with with. Um, a drug addiction, um, and he ends up having to rob banks, not only to fuel his drug addiction, but to fuel the adrenaline rush that he became so so accustomed to while serving in Iraq. And he eventually is sort of arrested, and it's about his life and his recovery. Well, needless to say, this is very different from some of your previous roles. Um, can you yeah. tell me what drew you to this? Uh, loads of stuff. I mean, for me as a young actor, I, I love being challenged. I love kind of putting myself in an uncomfortable situation and trying to figure out a way to get out of it. The Russo brothers are two directors that I really look up to and admire. Um, Two people that I'm very grateful for. They've changed my life in ways that I can't possibly explain. Um, So when they came to me with this material, it's really been like the job that keeps on giving, you know, because I got the chance to work with them again. Um, I got the chance to really stretch myself as an actor and and also got the chance to you know make friends for life and have an experience like no other and and kind of grow as a person um as well as an actor right right i mean you were talking about the the russo brothers was this experience working on cherry um different from working on them on the avengers films not really no i mean i think that's what is so amazing about the russos and why i hold them in such a positive light is that the difference between making a $500 million box office movie and making a really small independent movie about PTSD and substance abuse is so different. But the way that they approached making them is exactly the same. The way they treated the crew, the respect they had, the way they were able to galvanize everyone and have a really positive and fun experience while the subject matter was so dark and difficult to to swallow was amazing. So for me, there was no real difference in the process, just difference in the subject matter, um, which made... For an amazing experience for me because it was just such a challenge. Right. I mean, I, I can imagine directing the character that you're playing must be different from directing Peter Parker. Um, I mean, can, can you yeah. talk about some of, I guess, sort of like the granular bits as far as differences um, between that? Yeah, it'd be interesting. I've obviously never worked with two directors before. And uh, sometimes Joe would come in and give you a note. And then Anthony would come in afterwards and give you a contradicting note. And you sort of be like, I don't know which one I'm supposed to do because both of them are asking me to do different things. So you'd obviously have to just take it in turns and be like, I'm going to do Anthony's one first and then I'm going to do Joe's one and then they can figure out which one they prefer. But, you know, 
they just were really willing for me to just push myself as far as I could go when it came to the physicality of the character, which, you know, was losing weight and, and changing my physical appearance as much as possible to pushing myself mentally and finding places and emotions in me that I didn't really know that I had. Um, and ones that quite frankly, I would never like to see ever again. But, uh, but yeah, I just was really lucky that they were kind of open for me to just do everything I could possibly do to bring this character to life. There was no going too far with, with playing Cherry, which was a real pleasure. Right. I mean, I can imagine, was that also in a way scary? Um, because I mean, this is definitely stretching some new muscles acting wise. And also people aren't used to seeing you in this way. Were you concerned about that at all? Yeah, it was definitely scary. It was definitely scary. I mean, you read the script and you read Nico's book and, you know, I'm a really lucky, privileged kid from Southwest London. I have no, no concept of hardship of that degree, you know, and uh, I was really worried that I wasn't the right person for the job because I hadn't been through anything like that before. But it just meant that I had to put the time in and do a lot of research and speak to people. And I went to the VA and I interviewed lots of veterans who were suffering from PTSD and substance abuse um, and just made sure I did the work because I think when you're portraying a real person or you're portraying someone going through something that's happening to people every day, like being a drug addict or, or suffering from PTSD, you have a duty to do justice to them. So for me, I just wanted to work as hard as possible. Um, and that's kind of what distracted me from the fear of getting it right, if you know what I mean. Um, so, so yeah, so it was more about just kind of diving in headfirst and not thinking about uh, how scary it was. Right, right. You mentioned Nico Walker, who is the, the author of the book that this story is based on. Did you talk to him about it at all when you were doing research for this film? Unfortunately, no. At one point, there was a phone call schedule between the two of us to sort of sit down and chat. Um, for various reasons, that didn't happen. But I was saying earlier, the longer and longer you do this and the more and more films you make, you become more and more comfortable with films coming out. You know, like you, you learn to accept that you're not going to please everyone. Some people will love it. Some people will like it. Some people will hate it. And that's just the way of life. And you just have to deal with that. And I've kind of got to the point where you're not nervous anymore when films are coming out. But I am so nervous for Nico Walker to see this film because the book, when you read it, he obviously poured so much of his life and heart and soul into it that I really want him to feel like we did justice to his story and, and to and to the, the book that he wrote. Um, so I'm really nervous for him to see it. And I hope when he sees it, we can meet and talk about his experiences and, and all that sort of stuff. But as of yet, we haven't been able to be in touch. But I, I feel like, uh, you know, just reading the book, you get a sense, you get a real sense of what sort of person he is. I mean, are there any, I guess, parallels? I know you're super different, but are there any parallels between this character and you? Uh, I mean, that's where I always start when I'm trying to build a new character. I always kind of look for the similarities between me and the character. And then that's what I build on first to kind of build this full body picture of who this person is. I guess one of the similarities between him and I is he isn't a quitter. One thing that you'll see, especially when you see the film, is that he always tries his best, but he can never seem to catch a break. I've been so blessed and lucky in my career that I try my best and people have been so lovely and gifted me with amazing opportunities. But, uh, but yeah, I'd say the similarity between the two of us is that we both don't quit. Yeah. I think another similarity, and maybe this is something from a, more from an outside perspective, but what you seem to bring to your roles is just this sort of innate likability. And, mm -hmm. and you know, your characters are very likable, including this one, despite the fact that he does some pretty crazy things. I mean, do you think that's part of what helps the audience go on this journey because they do feel this kind of connection? Yeah, that was, that was a big thing that we had spoken about 
before shooting. Obviously, there's kind of six different versions of Cherry throughout this film. So we had six mini character arcs and then one kind of massive one that went over the entire span of the film. And the biggest thing for us was we needed the audience to fall in love with Cherry because it's such a difficult journey to go along. You wouldn't want to go along that journey with a character that you didn't like. So it was difficult portraying a sort of 17, 18-year-old kid falling in love without him being Peter Parker. And we really didn't want it to seem like Peter Parker suddenly started doing drugs. So it was that was, for me, the hardest character to crack, was the one that was most like myself. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that I think I did a pretty good job and, 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 and he is a massive departure for me while having, obviously, a lot of similarities. But that, for me, was the biggest challenge, was kind of making this character likable but nothing like myself so that I could convince audiences to trust me and come along on this journey with me. Right. I think a, a lot of that was done in your character's portrayal of the relationship with Emily. And I feel like that sort of gives a kind of foundation to the goodness of the character in that way, or the purity of the character in that way. I mean, what was it like um, shooting the scenes with, with uh, Ciara? And, um, and I mean, there, there was just such an amazing connection there that just came forth on screen. It was a real pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. She is a rock star and we were so lucky that she was in this film and that she gave us the performance that she gave. And it wouldn't have been half the project to work on and it wouldn't have been half the final product without her input and, and her talent. It was it, it was really daunting for me. I, I've never sort of played a character in love before in that capacity. And I'm just really lucky that as soon as we met, we hit it off and we became really good friends and we would hang out and we would talk about things that make us uncomfortable. Like we talk about like, oh, I'm a bit nervous about this scene. And she would talk about how she was a bit nervous about that scene. And just having that open dialogue between the two of us meant that when we were on set and we were most vulnerable, we felt safe because we were together in those scenes. So I was really lucky, really lucky that she um, was as cool as she was and the way she handled herself on set. She was so professional and hardworking and there was no... The Russos would say jump and she would say how high, you know, she had a great work ethic and, and she's, she's awesome. I'd love to work with her again. I was saying earlier that I had nothing to do with the casting process with Emily. Um, but when she was cast, the Russos sent me her audition tape about two or three months before production to just say like, by the way, this is the girl we've cast for Emily. And for the first time in my career, I was so unbelievably intimidated by her because her, her, she did the scene in, in her audition where she's screaming at Pills and Coke about Black putting on his black mask. And I remember watching it thinking, I need to do some more work because if I don't, she's going to act me off the screen and no one's going to remember anything about what I did in this film. So we were blessed to have her. And, um, and I haven't seen her in ages, but I'd love to see her and catch up and, and talk about the film and, and what everything everything that's happening. Yeah, I, I mean, your uh, scenes together were very intense. Some of them were super, super intense and emotional. Um, I mean, did you feel, I mean, I know it's acting, but I also imagine like, did you feel protective of her? Because there was, there were just so many things that were going on that were, that were so uh, troublesome and intense. Absolutely. Yeah. I was very protective and as was she t to me, you know, we were a team and we had each other's backs and we both knew that we were kind of climbing this mountain together and it was, and it was a difficult one to say the least. And we did it and we did it together. And I was so lucky to have, it. I remember this scene 
I don't think it's actually in the film. Cherry's talking to camera about how much Emily is doing his head in. And she walks in the back of frame and she's supposed to smack him in the back of the head. And it wasn't working. Like on camera, it just didn't look right. So I said to her, I was like, Sierra, listen, one time, just apps, you can hit me as hard as you like. Just hit me in the back of the head and it'll be fine and they'll get it. And I didn't expect her to hit me as hard. I've got the video <laughs> on my phone. And when I say the noise of her hitting the side of my head, both the Russos burst out laughing and, and she runs back on camera and she's like, oh, Oh my god, I'm so sorry. It was amazing. it was a really sweet moment. But like I said, we were so lucky to have her and and she's amazing. Um, one thing you'd mentioned earlier, and I wanted to get back to it, the movie is divided into, I want to say, six chapters or six sort right. of sections. And each of those, just visually watching it, I thought it was so cool. You know, like they, they all had different feels, there, there yeah. were different color washes, you know, production design. Um, were you aware of that during filming? I mean, how did, or, or was this, was some of this added later? Like, how, how was this communicated to you in the direction of your role and how it played out? I'm, I'm very inquisitive on set and, and I like to know everything that's going on and, and, you know, when they're changing cameras and all of a sudden using different lenses or, or the lighting's different, I, I just like to know. I'm just interested in, in knowing. But what I love about the Russos is no creative choice was made without a real valid reason for elevating the story. So, for example... When we first meet Emily, they used this photography lens, which had some sort of filter on it, which basically massively blew out the background and made her so kind of beautiful in the middle of the frame. And it, it, it means that the audience are only watching one thing, and that's her. And it's small little details like that that people that, I don't know, might not know a lot about film won't notice, but subliminally they will be drawn into the film, and that's what the Russos are so good at. And Tom Siegel, our DOP, is a master. He's an absolute genius. Um, so I really, really enjoyed watching the process of them come up with these cool ideas and funky tricks and, and all sorts of stuff to tell the story. Yeah, and I thought I thought it sort of brought something new to, to this kind of arc um, to have those different visual cues to, to feel different things. But it wasn't, it didn't feel like a gimmick. It felt like it was very yeah. much, you know, something that was entrenched in, in the telling of the story. So for me, like, it helped me because obviously I'm trying to portray the same character in six different lights. Mm -hmm. And the lights were different and the cameras were different and the sets and the costumes were different. So all of those creative decisions they made that were out of my hands did nothing but elevate my performance and help me kind of achieve what they wanted me to achieve. So I was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was, it was such a pleasure to watch. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, I don't know the exact number of years, but it seemed like it was trying to trace the span of, I don't know, was it about 15 years? 25 years. Oh, 25. Okay. Yeah. Um, don't quote me on that. I don't know. I'm <laughs> in trouble now. <laughs> yeah. Well, or maybe it's 15 years. You, 25 years sounds really difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine that's, that's because you're, you're, are you 24? Like in, yeah. So, um, so going, going to sort of project that sort of future age, I mean, I, I assume the, the chapters helped, but also, um, did you, what did you draw on or tap into to sort of play these parts that you haven't reached yet age-wise? I mean, it was interesting. Obviously I know a lot of people who are of that age and, and people that I can try and copy and, and, and emulate, I guess, um, or to emulate, um, but I think one of the biggest things for me was my, my makeup artist, Rachel. What she was able to achieve on that film was incredible. From the makeup to the, the heavy eye bags that I would have when I was, you know, abusing drugs or to the aging makeup that we have when we meet Cherry when he's leaving prison, 
were amazing. Like it was so strange looking at myself in the mirror and being young and sprightly and then trying to get into that character, being an old weathered man who'd been through so much. So a large portion of the success of those parts of the film all boiled down to Rachel's makeup, which was just amazing. She's in the other room. I'm sure she's listening and <laughs> her ears are burning. Right. So just, I guess, getting more into to the, to the performance and the emotions, um, what decisions did you make as an actor to portray him? I mean, obviously he's feeling these very, he's feeling and doing these very dramatic things. And I can imagine that you had to make choices as to when to hold back and when to sort of really go all in on something. I mean, what sort of decisions did you make in that way? I think I love to give my directors options. So for example, the scene where I'm in the car and I sort of kind of lose it, there are other versions of that scene where it wasn't quite as dramatic or it wasn't quite as aggressive. It was more sad or it was more emotional or it was more shell-shocked. So I think what we did is we just shot so many different versions of the same scenes with different types of kind of goals in mind. So there was never really a decision to like hold back here, hold back here, because we would say hold back. And then on the next one, we want you to just give us everything you've got. Um, like the scene in the car, for example, where we're robbing the bank with pills and coke. That was one of the most intense days of filmmaking I have ever had. It was um, all three of us were in the car doing the scene. Jeff Haley, our, our camera operator, was also in the car. And there was no like setting up camera shots. There was no, right, the camera's going to be here and we're going to do the scene five times. Then we cut. Then we're going to move the camera here. It was just a free for all. We just drove around Cleveland and he just filmed us all absolutely losing our minds, just going mental. The next, I couldn't speak for about a week. It was just a perfect example of there was never too much or too less. They just wanted us to try everything. And, and from trying everything, our amazing editor, Jeff Ross, I believe his name is, he has just kind of chiseled away and found the most perfect, perfect story for us. I'm, I couldn't be happier. I mean, that was that was an incredible scene. Um, oh, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. I watched that scene and it stresses me out <laughs> so much. I, when I watch that scene, I'm like, oh, God, I can't think about what it was like when we were shooting that. Well, I guess on, on another note, I mean, we're, we're in 2021, um, strange times. Um, what was 2020 like for you? I mean, people were all in different situations and lockdowns and things like that. What was it like for you? It was interesting, to say the least. I, I've been so lucky. I mean, we got locked down or shut down before we started shooting Uncharted, which is a film I shot last year. I had four months at home, which I really needed. I hadn't been home in a long time, and it was nice to kind of... I'm not very good at taking time off. I'm really good at working, and I'm really good at like keeping busy, but I don't do very well if someone says, like, take a week off. I'm like, well, I, I can't. I need to be busy. So it was actually quite a nice thing for me to be forced to stay inside and to not do anything. Obviously, for some people, that was a really real hardship, and, and, and some people have really been suffering from that. I've been so lucky that the movie industry obviously has the money to be able to test everyone every day and, and put the right safety precautions in place that we can work. You know, we shot Uncharted, we're shooting Spider-Man 3 now. So I've been really lucky. While it's been an, a really strange year, I think some of the positives is we, we've shown that as a society, if we really put our, our minds to it, we can really come together and make a difference in, in all different walks of life. And, and I hope that when this is all over, which I hope is really soon, we don't lose that sense of community. Because I think if, you, if you're going to pick a silver lining from, from the lockdown and from COVID, is that we're stronger together than apart. And, uh, and I really hope that's a quality that we don't lose. Absolutely. Getting back to Cherry, I mean, the moment I, I, I finished the movie, um, I just, 
I, I just thought that I, there would definitely be some Oscar buzz around this, um, and particularly your performance. I'm, how do you feel about, I'm sure I'm not the first person saying that, and how, how do you feel about that um, possibility? Uh, I, I, I don't really know how, how to feel about the whole thing. You know, I'm obviously honored that people were suggesting it. You know, that's, that's the pinnacle of being an actor. That's the highest accolade that you can, you can achieve or, or receive. It would be a dream come true. It would be amazing. Um, but I'm also reminding myself that I'm only 24 and I've got a whole career ahead of me. And if it's not this one, it will just give me the drive to, to get it next time or in 10 years time. I mean, look at DiCaprio. DiCaprio is one of my favorite actors of all time, arguably the best. And he only got his a few years ago. So while it's amazing and I'm so grateful that people are even considering it, um, I don't want to get my hopes up and uh, I just want to be realistic and enjoy the run or enjoy the wave while I'm on it. And hopefully I don't fall off. But if I do, I'll just swim back around and catch the next one. Um, last week, then I have to wrap up. Can you please comment on the Tom Holland umbrella law? Are you are you familiar with this? <laughs> if uh, it's on Twitter and that if, if you see the Tom Holland umbrella performance um, from the lip sync battle that you must watch or share it. I love that. It's the law. That's a great law. And I, that's a, I think one that should be an actual law. Yeah, it's interesting. That lip sync battle is one of those things that kind of have come back to haunt me a little bit. Um, I get more compliments from Dancing in the Rain in fishnets than I do for anything I've done. But, you know, something I love about that film, about doing that show was, I remember I got an, a letter from a school teacher telling me that there was a young boy at school who would prefer to dress in women's clothing. And he was getting bullied at school for it. And he said to someone, he was like, well, Spider-Man does it. And for me, that was, a, I, I really like relish in the idea that there was like positivity that had come from it. Because for me at the time, I was just dancing on a TV show and I felt like a bit of an idiot. But I, I really look back on it fondly now, knowing that someone kind of took something from it and it was positive and, and helped someone deal with something. So, uh, so yeah. So if you do watch my lip sync battle, share it, like it, let's make it the biggest video on YouTube. Let's go. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Tom. This was a pleasure. It was great meeting you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Experts make mistakes, even the awardist. So we're tracking our own progress on this chaotic awards journey by admitting what we're wrong about in our predictions and gloating about what we're right about. This week, we're putting David back on the spot with last week's Writers Guild Award nominations, which offer a key preview of which movies the industry is going for. David, what did we learn from these nominations and what did you get wrong? I have been very up and down on Defy Bloods in this year's Oscar race. Um, when we were doing our Golden Globes predictions, I, I told Joey I didn't think it would be a hit with them. He disagreed. We ended up putting it on. It was not. And then it got nominated for SAG. And so I went back on the Defy Bloods train. So I was predicting it would be nominated for WGA and was in a pretty good position for the Oscar race, the fact that it didn't cut the top five, even with uh, big contenders like Minari and Mank not eligible, indicates that it is not going to be the Oscar juggernaut that we thought it was going to be. And there have been, I think, enough indications now um, for the Spike Lee film that it's it, it might not go the distance. And I think it's really at risk even for a Best Picture nomination. Um, so I've just been wrong about that one over and over. I, I, I It's a hard <laughs> movie to track. And... Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people thought that because it was this kind of big summer film that res was one of the first pandemic movies to resonate on a pretty wide scale, that it would go the distance. But what we're actually seeing is a lot of early releases um, are, are getting 
kind of punished because this is a longer award season than usual. Um, I think a couple other indie favorites that we thought might pop up here, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and Original Screenplay and First Cow and Adapted Screenplay, both of which are you know such fantastic movies that we've been championing. Um, neither could make it. Um, and I think that's why they came out really early and they just haven't been able to cut through you know, some of the fresher contenders like Judas and the Black Messiah getting an original screenplay nomination when we've talked about it, it's struggling a little bit was a big surprise, especially because it, it doesn't really feel like a screenplay movie even. It's it's really about the acting and the filmmaking. Right. Um, so right. that's what I was wrong about. Uh, and what I was right about, and Mary will be thrilled uh, about this one, <laughs> is uh, White Tiger is a movie that I, we I, all... I saw that, yeah. We all loved. We I have been, frankly, perplexed that it hasn't... Um, you know, there's it's just not a lot of visibility for it in an awards context. It did very well on Netflix's streaming platform. It was in their top two, unlike a lot of their awards contenders. And um, it's just got a phenomenal uh, leading performance from Adarsh Gurav and just a really brilliant um, personal filmmaking from Ramin Barani. It got an adapted screenplay nomination here, which is a really big deal. And it also has shown up uh, on a lot of BAFTA long lists, which has a lot of industry no, overlap as well. Yeah, it got in for film, director for Ramin, uh, best actor. I think even Priyanka Chopra Jonas was nom- was long listed for best supporting actress. <laughs> so it, it it is finding that awards audience, even if it's not necessarily getting talked about in the same way as a Meg or a Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, and I did I did actually think it would pop up here, so that was great to see. And the hope now is that it can maybe score a surprise Oscar nomination or two. I, I still think it has a bit of a way to go, but this was a really nice, important first step. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know if this is more of like a campaign discussion, but why do you think it hasn't gotten more love? Because I was so blown away when I watched it, and I and I really thought the performances were fantastic, but it's it's been quiet. Other than this, it's been it's been pretty quiet. Do you think it came out too late? Do you think they didn't have enough of a push behind it? But I mean what do you what do you think? I think, you know, it's something we've talked about a lot is just Netflix's volume of contenders, particularly ones that came out in 2020. By the time White Tiger arrived, they already had so many. But with a movie like Defy Bloods looking maybe a little weaker uh, in in the Oscar contention than we thought it would, um, perhaps that that can reverse. But I mean, I remember Mary was the first of this group to see it. And she had um, she slacked me right after she saw it, like, oh, my God, White Tiger. And it wasn't particularly on my radar, which I think is true of a lot of people. And I watched it that night, and I was just blown away by it. Uh, and we've been really behind it here at EW. Um, and I, we can thank Mary Solosi for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I love The White Tiger. I, I think, I mean, uh, truly, I think it deserves um, adapted screenplay nomination, certain, at, like at least. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have read the book. It was, won the Booker Prize in 2008. And actually, um, Ramin Barani, the filmmaker, he's best friends with Aravinda Diga, the novelist. They went to college together. And the book is dedicated to Ramin Barani. And so... Um, wow, I didn't know that. It's really, yeah, I spoke to him about it. I read the book before interviewing him. I was like, I opened the book and like your name was on the first page. He's like, oh yeah, he's my friend from college. So um, apparently they give each other notes on their work a lot of the time. And so um, and it's really sort of an incredible adaptation. And then also just an incredible movie on its own. And and like David said, Adarsh Gaurav, the star, um, is he just... Um, is a huge discovery, I think. Yeah, uh, I would love for, as people get to talking about a pretty open fifth Best Actress slot, start talking a little bit more about him. 
Well, that is all from us today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Awardist. Thank you to Mary for her insights and for setting the Colin Firth Awards record straight. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think that needed to be done. Please subscribe and listen along every week wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, tell us what you think, share it with your friends. You can also head to ew.com slash awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race and follow me on Twitter at David Canfield 97, Clarissa at Clarissa NYC one and Mary at Miss Solosi. That is with two S's, not three. Golden Globe nominee Amanda Seyfried joins us next week for a candid conversation and our awards expert Joey Nolfi will be back for our Golden Globe prediction special. Thanks for listening. This has been The Awardist.